Welcome to the Working Dog Podcast. I'm your host, Allison Erskine. Come along while I interview the top handlers and clinicians around the world while hearing their stories of both failure and triumph and get their view on what it takes to have a good working dog. On this very first episode of the Working Dog Podcast, I interview Elvin Kopp of That'll Do Ranch. We talk about how he got started into the stock dogs. He shares some of his great dog stories and even better advice. Let's begin with how you and Jan started That'll Do Ranch. Okay, well, it was in 1981. Uh, prior to Jan and I uh, getting married, that um, uh, well, I'll even back up. As a little kid growing up, I always wanted to be a rancher and a cowboy. Uh, it was in my blood, and none of my, none of my uh, family members or uncles and aunts or anything like that ranched, uh, and yet it was in my DNA. So when I met Jan, I thought, if I'm ever going to become a rancher and a full-fledged uh, uh, horseman, uh, I, I better do it before we get married. So I bought the ranch that we're on in uh, uh, 81, spring of 81. And then Jan and I were married in December 81. So it's the only place we've ever lived. So we started this ranch. And, um, you know, we jumped into it. I was a, a grain farmer, basically, down in southern Alberta prior to being a rancher. And so it was new to me. But uh, the sky was the limit. I just had so much energy. I just wanted to get out there and live the life. And uh, so that's how we came to that little ranch. So That'll Do Ranch is a definitely interesting name. Is there a specific way that name came about, or do you just think that was connected to your dogs, or what? Well, uh, when when we um, bought this place, we didn't have a name for it. It was a year after we moved here that I went to my first dog training seminar uh, because I, I wanted the complete uh, package of, uh, you know, some good horses and a good dog, and I saw... A, an advertisement. I had gone to a friend of mine, a cutting horse trainer, when I had coffee with him, and I saw on the Bolton board an advertisement for a three-day stock dog training seminar. So I thought, well, if I go for three days, um, I'll learn everything there is to know about dogs, <laughs> uh, because really all I wanted was a good stop, a good recall, and a SIGM command, go get them, bite you know, whatever. And I thought, well, if I learn one command per day, how to get it on, that's all I needed in a dog. And so that's the mentality that I went to my first clinic with while my eyes were opened when I uh, took that clinic and I saw uh, how, you know, some of the, it was Jack Knox that did that first clinic and, and I saw him work and I thought, boy, that's what I need on this ranch. And uh, he used this term, that'll do, which I'd never heard before as a recall. So we were sitting at the table one day thinking, what did we want to name our ranch? And we live in the Battle River Valley. So uh, Jan and I were talking about it. And I, I said, well, how about Battleview Ranch? And Graham at that time would have been, our son would have been three, four years old. And he said, what did you say? That'll do, Ranch. And uh, Jan and I looked at each other. Actually, we had already gone out and made business cards 
and letterhead oh. and everything. We were going to incorporate Battleview Ranch. And uh, so we had all that done already. And when we told Graham what the name of the ranch was, that's when he, he misheard us and thought we had said, that'll do ranch. Yeah. And uh, when we heard that, Jan and I looked at each other and we said, that's what our ranch is going to be called. So we had to redo everything. And uh, so that ranch name is stuck. So, And it fits so well with you now. Um, let's talk about that first dog you took to that clinic. What was he like? Well, the first dog that I, it was a three-day clinic, and I knew that uh, the clinician was a border collie man. And at that time, I had a blue healer German Shepherd cross dog by the name of Ringo. And I thought, you know, he was a dog that had a lot of bite. And I thought, I don't know with sheep. It might not be in my best interest to take Ringo to the clinic. So I knew of somebody who had a border collie that for some reason didn't have the instincts he was looking for. And uh, so for the last six months, this dog was locked up in the hayloft of a hip-roof barn. Um, and they would just go open the trap door once a day and put food up there. And that's the only, only socialization he got. So I thought, well, a border collie is a border collie is a border collie. So I called him up and I said, hey, would you mind if I took your border collie to this clinic? He was only about eight miles from where the clinic was being held. And he said, sure, you can come get him. So. I went and got him, and this dog wasn't very sociable. He was snarling and snapping at me, and I've got him in my truck, and I'm petting him on the way to the clinic, and he he's snapping at me, and I'm thinking, this isn't good. So we got to the clinic, and uh, anyway, that first day, the dog just, you know, he, he wasn't in the mental state to be worked, and, and I realized at the end of that day that... Um, you know, I needed something different to work. So I went home and uh, decided to take my German Shepherd Blue Healer across the second day. And so I got there. He's a big, strong dog. And he, Jack asked me to send him out to go. And uh, we were in an indoor arena. He said, can you go send your dog out to go and gather those sheep? And I said, well, no, I don't think so, but I can try. He said, sure, go ahead and try. So I sent him. And uh, he just did the most amazing demonstration of shearing sheep because <laughs> he came in there and he plucked the wool off of them. There was wool strung all over the the arena before we got a hold of them. And anyway, um, that was it for that day. I didn't take him out the second time and went home. And the third day I went without a dog and I learned more the third day because I didn't have the stress and... Uh, anxiety of taking these dogs out there that uh, I knew weren't the quality we were looking for. And I just sat and watched and listened and realized I really want this. And I bought a pup at that clinic off parents that I saw work there. And, um, and as a matter of fact, it was one year to the day uh, of when Jen and I got married. So it was our first anniversary that I spent at a dog clinic and, <laughs> and so I've never lived that one down but uh no you've been doing start. it ever since yeah <laughs> so from that first clinic just two years later you went to your first trial correct yeah it would have even been less it would have been uh probably just about 14 months after that clinic I bought that pup and uh, I 
the very first trial I went to was in Lloydminster. And uh, Mick would have been, I think, 13 or 14 months old. Okay. Yeah. And then is that the dog that you took down to Meeker, Colorado? No, no, no. Okay. A lot of water ran under the bridge before. Because <laughs> three before years later, down. you went and won Meeker, well, Colorado. I, uh, Mick was a dog that uh, he had incredible instinct and very easy to train. And I spent that year training him. And I, I just was so in love with that dog. and. And uh, I remember we got Jack back up to do another clinic. And I was so excited to show Jack this pup. So when he came up here, I showed him to him at the clinic. And he asked me how much I wanted for him. And I remember thinking, well, if Jack wants him, I must have a good one. And if I've got a good one, I'm not selling him. And so... uh uh, I had my hopes set on Mick, uh, but unfortunately, uh, a week after that, I lost him. I uh, drove over him with the tractor, and mm -hmm. it was just like my right arm was gone. And so then I was in search of a dog. Mm -hmm. So I uh, got a hold of, uh, I called Jack, and I said, Jack, I lost Mick. And I said, do you know, can you give me as many names of people that you know of that might have some dogs for sale as possible, whether whether it's in Britain or uh, or North America. Uh, so I, I called a lot of people. And uh, my the thing that I wanted most in my dog was the ability to work cattle because I was a rancher. I never thought that I'd be interested in competing. I just wanted a good dog. And so as I called around... Uh, you also realize there's quite a few dogs for sale, but the problem is um, you always got to try and figure out why is the dog for sale? Mm. Uh, because if the dog's as good as they say he is, chances are he wouldn't be for sale. Absolutely. So anyway, I I called a guy uh, and he uh, said, yeah, I've got a dog. He'll be a cow dog. He said, he'll damn sure never be a sheep dog. I said, well, why do you say that? Well, he said, uh, um, he's got too much bite for a sheepdog. He'll, he'll be a good cow dog. So I, that's what I wanted. So I bought him. And back in, that would have been in 83 or 82. 82, I believe. Um, and uh, when I got him up here, I paid $2,500 for this dog at that time. In 82, $2,500 was a lot of money for a dog. And uh, I remember getting him here, and I sent him out to our big field out there. He had a most amazing outrun. Uh, you talk about a pear-shaped outrun, and, and he had it. He would just open up and, and run hard. But when he came to the top end, he'd just come in, and, uh, you know, he'd rip him in, right in the throat. He'd just grab him by the throat and rip his throat like he was just vicious. And so I lost a couple of sheep, and I realized, okay, well, that's why they said he'd, be a, he'd yeah. be a cow dog and <laughs> yeah. not a sheep dog. Plus, by this time, I was the fourth owner. Oh, wow. So and he's did. only two and a half years old. Yeah. And I didn't realize that being the fourth owner in two years of a dog's life, working life, uh, there's a reason why you're the fourth mm -hmm. owner. So anyway, uh, without telling you how I got through to him, but... I remember telling Jen, I said, do not let me give this dog away or do away with him for at least six months. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, it was in the wintertime. I remember uh, clearing our yard out, the snow out, and having vehicles parked in different corners, shining lights. And I would work till late at night with this dog, like every day for hours. And I was so determined. Um, anyway, uh, I got through to him one day. It was, it was actually a day where I said, either I get through to him today or... He's not going to be my yeah. dog anymore. Yeah. And I was at that point. This was his last day. And that day, uh, we uh, we um, had a meeting, <laughs> Jeff and I. And uh, that's what turned the whole thing around. And uh, the interesting thing is when I... Um, I, I went on to, to compete with him. He's a phenomenal cow dog. Phenomenal um, ability to read livestock, second to none of any dog I've ever had. And uh, once I got through to him, he won over 80% of all the trials I entered. And uh, when I went to Meeker with him, um, the guy I bought him off was is the guy that came in second. He's the guy that said, you'll never be able to compete this really? dog in, in sheepdog wow. trials. And uh, so it was a great thrill, yeah. That Absolutely. Was, so that was in a little less than five years of my first cl uh, clinic that I took. Okay. So Jeff definitely made the biggest impact on your career. Then. Oh, for sure. He changed. He yeah. changed the way I work livestock. Uh, uh, he has turned our ranch into what it is today. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, great, huge influence. Mm -hmm. So you've also been a handler of the year for five consecutive years and also a super dog of the year. And for people that don't know what a super dog is, do you want to explain to them that? Well, uh, super dog of the year, you're, you're, uh, the same dog would have to finish in at least the top three of one sheep trial and the top three of one cow dog trial. Mm -hmm. And then you would add up the points that they had won combined. And... Um, for three years in a row, I won it. The three years that that, that award was out, it was only out there for three years. Uh, I won it, and two of those years, I was first and second. Okay. okay. So with Jeff and a son of Jeff, Jake. Okay. So that was for um, Super Dog of the Year. And then Handler of the Year was, uh, again, you would have had to have competed in both sheep and cattle and then add up the points that you gained to be the handler of the year also. Mm -hmm. So, um, so what is quite an accomplishment. Yeah, of course. So what does it take to run a dog on both sheep and cattle at that height? Well, first of all, um, I got to say that as much as the dog handlers that, that I came in contact with, uh, having been to Britain many times and seeing some of the top dog handlers, uh, was a great influence on me, but I, 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 to this day, will say the equine world had more influence in my training of dogs than the dog world ever did. Why do you say that? Because they were way further advanced in in understanding what what makes an animal do what they what they want to do, and how can I best um, in, uh, get myself infused into their DNA instead of trying to teach them or get them to come to my DNA mm -hmm. and teach them from a human perspective. So the, the the equine industry is so far advanced over the dog industry to this day. 
Absolutely. And, uh, and, and so there's some great uh, horsemen out there that just influenced um, the way I read livestock, which includes cattle, horses, dogs, mm-hmm. uh, and then, and then uh, work in unity with my dog. So with that, within that, your question was, what do I need in a dog? First of all, um, I like dogs that have enough confidence. I like a dog that's bold and has confidence. I don't particularly like a hard-headed dog. That's not what I'm talking about. But a dog that's got natural confidence and natural ability. And then I want to teach them from a canine perspective as opposed to a human perspective. And I'm big on that. Try and figure out what causes them to do the things they do. And, um, and, and, and from that, I want to become part of the pack and work my way up to, uh, the, in the pecking order to be pack leader mm-hmm. and to communicate them from a canine perspective as opposed to a human perspective. So that I, I could get into that, but that would, that would, uh, take up too much time. So, <laughs> so you were also into your cutting horses, and that's right. In 2011, you were the reserve champion at Calgary Stampede on one of your fraternity prospects. That's right. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Why do you? Why did you get into cutting horses? Well, when I uh, before I bought the ranch up here, um, it was the cutting horses that intrigued me. Anytime I went to the show, to a cutting horse show, I just thought, is there any way I would ever be able to do that? I just thought it was way out of my uh, my league, and um, so as we got uh, went along, I, I uh, bred up some horses that uh, um, you know I had a, a really good genetic background in my horses, and and um, went to a lot of clinics and spent time with some of the best horsemen in North America, and and they all encouraged me that um, I could do it, that, that I had what it took to do it. And so that was a challenge I said. I'm very challenge goal oriented. Mm-hmm. And so that was a goal of mine to uh, raise and train and compete at the highest level there is. And uh, so with that, and the interesting thing is the dogs taught me a lot about cutting horses. And secondly, I use the dogs for turn back uh, when I'm training my horses too. So they're very valuable in that sense too. Of course. Yeah. Kind of blend them together. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so I know this, but I don't think the listeners do. You train your dogs to only go to water when you tell them to go to water. What is the reason behind that? Well, that that's not completely accurate. What I want to do is when my Dogs want water the most. I want to be able to call them off of it. Okay. Um, and so in the early stages, uh, yes, I will. Uh, instead of having free choice water out there, I will teach them um, on command to go to water and be able to call them off. But uh, certain times a year, you know, for instance, if if I'm gone all day and it's a hot day, I'll have water in my pens. I, mm-hmm. I'm not saying I don't have free water for them, but... Um, one of the questions that I start a clinic with quite often is how many of you here in the clinic would be able to call your dogs to you a hundred percent of the time? And, um, 
there would have been a time with a couple of my dogs that I would have said, yeah, I'm there. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm there at 100%. As a matter of fact, one dog in particular by the name of Teak would have, would have been that type of dog where I said he will come 100% of the time. So I went down to Nacogdoches, Texas to the cow dog futurity with Teak. And, um, and so we went into the competition. I was going to do a dog training seminar in Nome, Texas for Jimbo Dunnigan uh, after the futurity. And uh, so I, I get there down to Nacogdoches and Jimbo comes up to me and says, uh, Alvin, uh, the, the school isn't full. And I said, well, that's no problem, Jimbo. If, they, if the client doesn't fill up, you and I are going to have a lot of fun uh, working dogs. So we, I go and compete while I won the futurity and the maturity. And uh, I was fortunate enough to win it. And after that, the clinic was full. Jimbo comes to me and he says, Alvin, we got to get home. We got to get ready. The clinic's full. <laughs> so we head, we head to his ranch. We had a day in between. And it was a hot day. I don't know. It was 100, 110 above. You humid it was it's not far off the gulf of mexico so the humidity was high they grow rice there uh different than uh, some of the ranches in texas that uh that you think of and um so we went out to go and gather some cattle and it was hot and teak was used to going to water whenever he was thirsty so um they had these um canals running with levees because they flood their ground for growing rice and so there was was these big water canals around and all of a sudden teak took off he was hot he took off for water and um, i just let him go i thought no no problem jimbo says uh stop your dog stop your dog he hollers out and uh i didn't know why but i called teak and teak's not coming He's heading for water because he's always been able to choose. And so Jimbo gets, he says, stop your dog. And he, we're on horseback and he takes after my dog. And I'm thinking, this is really weird. And I take off after my dog and I call him and call me. And finally I stop him just before he gets to the canal. And he said, you never let your dog go for water here without clearing the water first because there's alligators in it. So we went there, and sure enough, there was alligators along the side. And uh, we had to pick our spot and clear, you know, make sure it was clear for the dog to go to water. So that was that 1% where I couldn't call my dog off. And he needed it the most. And I needed it, and it would have cost him his life. Absolutely. So ever since then, when we work, and there are hot days and long days, and my dogs wanted to go to water, every dog from time to time, as they've committed to go to water, I will call them off mm-hmm. and see whether I've got the recall mm-hmm. in that situation. So wherever it is uh, where I I wonder, you know, is my re- recall good in this situation, I will try it mm-hmm. to get it as close to that 100% as possible. Wow. That is an awesome story. I love that story. <laughs> I always try and tell it, but it's never as good as you tell it. <laughs> um, Elvin, how would you describe your training philosophy? Well, I guess if I was to describe it, it, it would be one. Um, what I find is a lot of people train from a human perspective, and so consequently, they do a lot of mechanical training. And mechanical training becomes the number one uh, goal. Uh, get your sides on, 
uh, have your dog listening to you, get your square flanks, all this type stuff. And uh, I come at it from a perspective that I want the dog to use his God-given talent. Uh, I, I want to develop that to the best of that dog's ability. And then only when needed, I step in to train. So I spend a lot of time developing that natural instinct. Um, and uh, probably the biggest part of that would be teaching dogs how to work flight zones. And flight zone, for those of you uh, that wonder what that means, is that would be the distance off livestock to where you're in contact with livestock, but not threatening them. If you're inside the flight zone, you will get one of two reactions. You'll get fight or flight. Uh, if you work from the flight zone, you'll gain trust in the livestock. And uh, so the way we work lives, uh, livestock on foot, the way we work livestock on horseback is the same way we're working with dogs. So we like our dogs always to approach from the flight zone. It's when they work from the flight zone that they can use their stock savvy and be able to start reading cattle. And, and um, when you work the numbers of cattle that we do, um, dogs always have to conserve their energy. If they overwork, if they're inside the flight zone, anxiety, stress will get to them and mentally they'll wear out before they ever will physically. Mm -hmm. So I need to preserve that because we put in some long days. Of course. And uh, so I teach them how to work from the flight zone. That's why I keep things calm. Allows me to keep my whistles, my word, my uh, voice commands soft. I want to create in them a desire to listen, not forcing them to listen. Mm -hmm. So almost invariably, as my dogs push me, push my buttons, I'll get quieter, not louder. Okay. And uh, because if they, if you think of it from a canine perspective, uh, and two dogs are challenging each other, you, what, what you'll see first of all is eye contact. They'll look at each other. If neither one gives, you'll get verbal. And it's always a growl if they're challenging each other. Growls never get loud. You cannot get a low decibel. You can't uh, bring a low decibel out with a lot of volume. Uh, so they stay uh, quiet with their with their growls and then they enforce it physically until a dog gives. So I want to use that same mindset. Start with making eye contact, following it up with a verbal, uh, which would be a growl for me. And then if need be, put as much physical pressure on as it takes to get the dog to give to you. Now, why not raise your voice? Well, the reason for that is, is in their world, if a dog barks, it's always a sign of lack of confidence. Mm -hmm. In the early stages, barking is always a sign of lack of confidence. And, and so if I raise my voice to where it sounds like a bark to the dog, what I'm portraying to the dog is a lack of confidence in myself. And if I have a dog that, that, that is self-confident, he's going to say, thank you very much, I'll take over. And so then it becomes a war between... Um, uh, of the, your, your volume, your commands getting louder, and uh, and the dog saying no, make me. It sounds like you haven't got the confidence, yeah. and so I like to look at it the other way and say, I want to protrude to the dog that I am confident. I'm pack leader. I've got the confidence, and let's work in this type of environment. And they eat it up. 
I, yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's worked for me as well anyways. Um, I've got one question for you left. If you could isolate one piece of advice or even five minutes you've spent with someone that has made an impact on your dog career, what would that be? Oh, my. Um, I've got one piece of advice. Before you go and take lessons from someone, before you go to somebody's seminar, watch them work their dogs. If what you see, if you want to mirror what you see, then go and take a lesson or go and take a seminar. But if they handle dogs in a way that you don't want to, don't learn bad habits. Absolutely. It's easier um, to create good habits than it is breaking bad habits. So go and check it out. Spend some time. Um, and and it, there's a lot of good handlers out there. But there's some that I wouldn't go to. Simply because that's not the way we like to work our livestock. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be my number one advice. Seek out who it is you want to take a clinic from first by the way they work their dogs. Not by what they say, but by the way they work their dogs. Watch first. And then if you say, wow, okay, that's the way I want to work my dogs, then go and take uh, lessons. That'd be my number one piece of advice. Okay. You also, Elvin, have some DVDs that you made with Lakeland yes. College a few years ago. Well, Olds College, but yeah. <laughs> oh, was it Olds yeah, College? Yeah, Olds College. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and you still have them available, right? Yes, we do. Um, so they were done in 1989 to 1989 to 91. There's a set of three. The first one is developing the instincts of the dog. Second one would be mechanical training. And the third one, practical applications. Um, now, realizing that that's 30 years ago, mm -hmm. so um, some things have changed. And I don't make apologies for that. I hope I'm better now than I was back then. They are still are very valuable. But one of the things we're planning on doing this spring is updating them. Oh, really? So at the clinic that we're having in April... Uh, at the, it's, I'm, I, I'm announcing this, but uh, we, ha we haven't formulated it totally mm -hmm. yet. But I'm hoping that in the clinic that we have this April, that we will be updating those, uh, using that clinic environment to yeah, update the DVDs. That'd be a great, great opportunity. So that's hot off the press. There you go. I have to tell a funny story now about these right. DVDs. So my dad actually worked with Elvin um, a long time ago as well. And Elvin gave my dad a set of these. They're actually VHS tapes. Yeah. And so I got my little hands on them um, about a year ago. And I've always wanted to have these DVD sets, but I didn't want to have to go buy them because I knew my dad had them somewhere in the house. And so I got my greasy little hands on these, but I didn't have a VHS player. And so I hunted and hunted online for a VHS tape player, but they're like a thousand dollars now. Oh my and goodness. so. Um, I ended up finding one on Facebook Buy and Sell, and it's a whole entire TV with a VHS player in it. And I bought it for $40, I think, and I was just the happiest camper. And so now anywhere I move, whether it's a ranch job or wherever, I pack this huge TV with me in my truck that takes up half the back seat so I can make sure I have these DVD sets with me of Elvin's. And so oh, okay. I promise they are good and they're worth the watch. Um uh. So you mentioned that this spring 
there is an upcoming clinic. Yes. Uh, what are the dates there? Where can they well, find they'll that? Well, prob- they'll be on our website, that'lldoranch.com. Um, there'll probably be two of them. Okay. There'll be one that will um, focus on um, doing the update on the DVDs, and then there'll be one that's just a regular clinic. Of course, yeah. Yeah. So that would be uh, the two last weekends in April. I haven't even got the dates with me here right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, they can find that on the website yeah, as well. Yeah. And then also upcoming litters. I know you have a litter on the ground right now. Yes, we do. And do you have any plans for more litters this year or? We usually have two litters a year. Okay. So there'll be another litter in fall. Okay. Yeah. But you can find all those on your website. That's well. right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Perfect. Well, thank you, Alvin, for sharing your stories and insight and opinions with me. I really appreciate it. And I hope we get to talk later on in the future. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Working Dog Podcast. You can show your support by sharing this episode with a friend or on social media. Be sure to watch for when our next episode drops. You can find us at the Working Dog Podcast on Facebook as well as on our website, theworkingdogpodcast.com. Catch you all later.